The internet is teaching kids that there are a thousand ways to learn things and that at some point it's going to be less and less worth it for kids to show up and open a textbook. Welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, leadership coach, and parent of two amazing kids. Every week I talk to leading educational thinkers and doers, and we do a deep dive into some of the challenges and opportunities that face educators today. And I offer some practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they're going to live in. So we're in our second week of exploring power and power relationships in schools, which is a topic I don't think we reflect on nearly enough, to be honest. You know, there's an inherent tension when it comes to learning and power. Namely, how much power do you as a learner have in any learning interaction to choose not just what you learn, but how and where and when? And, you know, one of the things that casts such a long shadow over this conversation is the fact that going to school is compulsory. Learners have very little choice but to attend a school, which then decides almost everything about the what, the where, and the when of learning. So right from the start, we take agency away from kids, and we rarely seem to think about the implications of that. But someone who has been thinking about that for quite some time is my guest on this week's podcast. Silvia Martinez is the co-author of what I think may be one of the best books on learning in schools to be written in the last five years, Invent to Learn which has also come to be known as the Bible of the Maker Movement. She's an advisor to the Stanford University Fabler and Fellows, and she has a long history in leading educational nonprofits and in product design and development in educational games. And she was one of the very early designers of the software for that GPS navigational system that gets all of us to where we want to go in today's world. What I love about Sylvia is her genuine passion for creating environments in schools where teachers and students can explore learning on their own terms. And so in this podcast, we talk about that as well as the dynamics of power in classrooms, the cultural movements that lead to change in schools, and the complexities around the idea of empowerment in the various hierarchies of schools. It's an important and on many levels fascinating conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. So real fast, before we get to our conversation, I want to remind you that I'll be co-leading five new Modern Learners Labs up and down the East Coast in November, December, and January. And the best part for me, at least, is that I'll be doing it with two really special educators, my friends, Dr. Gary Steger and Homa Tavanger. These events will both challenge you and inspire you, and I think they're great opportunities to do professional learning for yourself, but also then to join a global PLC of others who are grappling with some of the most important topics in education today. You can check out all the details at modernlearners.com labs. And I promise you, if you join us, you're going to find it time and money well spent. Finally, as always, at the end of my conversation with Sylvia, I'll be back with three things that you can do right now to think more deeply about power in your school community. Don't forget, if you like what you hear today, please head on over to iTunes and give us some love via review or a rating. And I hope you'll continue the conversation around power in schools with us in our Modern Learners community. That's at modernlearners.community. Check it out if you haven't already. Cheers, everyone. Thanks so much for listening.
So Sylvia, one of the reasons that I wanted to chat with you about power is that it's something that comes up a lot in your work when you talk about making and also in the book, Invent to Learn, and also in some of the blog posts that you've written over the years. So maybe it'd be a good place to start by just talking generally about how you see power relationships kind of happening in schools and, and how they inhibit learning, but also maybe how they can promote learning uh, in classrooms, but let's, let's just start generally. So when you think about schools, what kinds of impacts are there by the relationships that we have in this hierarchy of roles and the power that kind of sits in between um, those places on the hierarchy? I think that it's overlooked that just kids having to go to school is a power play. It's a, you, if you're making someone do do something, you're exerting your power over them. Um, now, I don't think most kids are resentful about that or even think about it. It's just part of what we do as a culture. But there's no getting away from that hierarchy. And at the bottom are often the kids who have nowhere, no choice in the matter. And so what's the impact of that, do you think? Because although most kids just follow along. That's the narrative. That's the story. We go to school and we're, we are required to go to school. But what's the, or is there an impact on that in terms of how kids then approach the interactions that happen in school or approach the, the learning environments or the learning contexts that are built for them? Well, I think it's, it's baked into the system. I think the expectation is, is that you have to be there. You have to listen. You have to do what you're told. You, you know, there's a, there's a whole list of things that, that you must do to succeed in the system. And that when there are ch children who challenge those sort of everyday hierarchies, and it seems really, you know, out of the box, it seems completely baffling to people that anyone would challenge this. And yet, I, it's kind of the opposite. It's like, it's kind of amazing how kids really do work hard at school that when they're not being asked what they want to do and you know they have it's they have very little stake in in what's actually happening you know so i think it pervades everything that goes on in school i don't think it's something we can ignore and just say well that's the way it is and that's the way it's always going to be and then talk about well kids we should empower kids to do this or that in this, in maybe one area that we choose, we're going to empower you to, you know, have an invention, uh, to make inventions. And it's like, well, you can't just pick and choose where you decide to give people power. So is it an all or nothing? So that's a really good question. If you, if it is, is it complete chaos? Do you just say, <laughs> everybody does what they want and, you know, it's complete chaos or, or are there structures where people have power within the system, but it's still a system. You know, there are lots of philosophers who talk about these kinds of things. Um, you know, Paulo Freire talked about the pedagogy of the oppressed where a lot of people come in and say, we're gonna do this thing to you and you're going to appreciate it and you're going to be better as a result. Well, what they should be saying is, how do you wanna grow? How do you want to grow as a society, as a culture? Um, you can't do it to people. Um, they have to participate in their own liberation. And, you know, that's still quite a controversial thing to say, because when you're looking at a five-year-old, there's no clear case that they, they would have any idea what to do. 
So <laughs> you want to create structures and opportunities for them to experience things that they've never experienced before and, and fall in love with learning and learn the things that society thinks are important. So I think that balance between structure and opportunity and freedom and, and constraint uh, is something that's, that's the art of teaching. So when you mentioned chaos before, you know, the first thing that came to mind was Summerhill and that totally open environment where kids do have 100% choice, 100% agency, right. power to, to do whatever they want to do. And uh, they're, they're offshoots now, kind of the sub, Sudbury schools that are in various places around the states and around the world. From what I've read, the kids who go through that experience end up being pretty much just fine. It's, it's not a question of a lack of structure then puts them out in the world unprepared for a lot of the things that they're going to face. So is it really more just on the philosophical level or is it on the practical level? Do we feel like we just can't do this because if we tried to do it, we just wouldn't have any sense of how it would work? Or is it, well, I guess my question is, what comes first, the practical problems with it or the philosophical problems with it? Well, I think, I think you have to do it all at once. You know, I think people have this very quantum idea of progressive education versus regular education where, you know, it's, it's this, it's this weird, there's this weird gap in the middle. And on one side, there's kids sitting silently in rows dressed in identical uniforms. And on the other side, there's kids wandering in the fields you know, barefoot with flowers in their hair and they, and they discover the Pythagorean theorem somehow on their own. And like in between, there's like nothing, no, and, and no one really believes that, but we sort of hold this idea that there, it's this all or nothing. Kids either have to be completely free to do anything or they're completely constrained. And I think there's, there's a continuum on a lot of different levels and teachers pick and choose where they, stay, where they stand on these continuums every day. You know, do I give a lot of direction? Do I back off? Do I, am I telling the students what to do every minute of every day? Or do I let them have some free time? If I give an assignment, do I tell them they have to have four drafts and they're each, what dates they're due and how, how I'm going to grade them? And, you know, then they're going to have a, you know, or we just sort of do the project and see what evolves. And in between, there's all kinds of choices that teachers make all the time. And there's no one right answer. It's not, we go from X to A to Z, you know, and there's nothing in between. Um, I think the power of teacher choice is really very important. And the question you ask is how do teachers learn to make those choices? And it's impossible if they've never seen any of those choices. If they've never been in a classroom themselves, if they haven't seen it at teacher school, if they haven't student taught, if they haven't been in a, in a classroom where there's some forms of student autonomy. How are they supposed to figure this out? Especially in a system where they might be punished if they do something that's not, you know, that's out of that's out of the box. Why would they take the risk to do something that they might have heard of in some podcast? You know, it's like, well, Will says, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's hardly enough to really sustain something day after day, week after week, month after month, especially if you're being pressured by parents who don't know what you're doing and other teachers who don't like, you know, to see other models and the principal who doesn't believe it. And it's like, are you supposed to be a martyr that just invents these things? I think that's putting too much on teachers, which 
I think creates needs for professional development that really walks the talk of empowering teachers as learners, as students, as designers, um, so that they can take those lessons back to their classroom and hopefully have colleagues that support it. So it's interesting because right in that answer, you talked about probably three or four, maybe even five different power relationships that exist mm -hmm. within schools, right? That teachers yeah. are fearful that if they go out too far on the ledge that they're going to be reprimanded or that parents are going to um, raise their voice because it doesn't look like what they, what they experienced when they were in school. I'm wondering the extent to which you think none of it can happen without a culture that supports it though, right? And I, I think you'd agree, and in fact, I, I know you wrote this, that um, when we were talking about giving kids freedom and agency and choice in terms of what they can do in classrooms, those same conditions of freedom, agency, and choice have to exist for teachers too, and teachers have to feel that they are able to do that. Um, is it your sense that, that school culture works against that in general? And, and um, what are the kind of difficulties in, in beginning to shift the entire culture around its stance toward power in classrooms? So you're absolutely right. I've, I've written this, I've talked about it. I don't think there's any way you can talk about empowering students without saying and without teachers being empowered. You know, you're not gonna have this generation of students who are inventing the future with teachers who are required to read scripts. It just doesn't match. It's not gonna happen. And, you know, sure, culture is, is part of it, um, but culture doesn't, create pedagogy you know just because you have an open-ended culture where people listen to each other doesn't mean that teachers are going to suddenly break out with you know having a certain kind of, of of classroom now it might make it more likely because i think teachers want to have a classroom where t where students want to be there where they're interested in discovering new things and it's 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 exciting and open um, but I don't think it's, it's, ne it's necessarily all about culture. I think you have to have a strong vision of what you believe about learning. I know we've talked about this before. I think you have to have leadership that will back up the teachers because when the parents come in and say, well, I did time spelling tests. Why don't my kids do time spelling tests? And the principal goes, well, yeah, we should add that too. You know, it's like, ah, wait, you know, you need to be able to say what you believe about learning. You need to be able to say it as an individual, as a community. You need to be able to um, explain it to, to people and, and stand behind it. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly culture, but it's not just, I think a lot of people think culture just means people are happy and, and right. uh, you know, you're supported in, in, in what you do. Important, yeah. And it's been my experience, too, when I go to schools where I see that kids have a lot of agency and, and teachers as well, that the culture is really what allows for that. It makes space for that more than anything else. There's this mm -hmm. element of, I don't know if innovation is the right word, but expectation that there will be learning happening on the part of teachers, that they will be trying mm -hmm. different things, that not all that stuff will work necessarily, but they're not putting kids at risk. There's a trust element to it as well. Um, and I, I think that's the other piece of it, too, that is kind of interesting that runs through this whole conversation, and that is that piece of trust. Um, because trust in many cases, huge. yeah, because in many cases, obviously, leadership doesn't trust teachers to do 
the things that they might be able to do and and teachers don't trust kids and parents don't trust. so talk a little bit about maybe what the what that impact of trust or lack of trust has on on this whole conversation and then maybe some ways that you've seen that trust has um has been built into the culture in ways that support thinking differently about classroom practice well I, you know i think that that trust is 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 such a key element kids learn what school means and part of it is this lack of trust that they're not really there to learn that they're going to sort of you know skirt around and slack off as much as possible and i it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's the same for teachers you know if, if teachers hear the message over and over again that they're not really dedicated professionals you start to say well why should i work this hard you know i'll just do my job and and, and go home um you know this, this lack of trust can can you know pervade the whole system and it takes a lot of time to build that trust back again i hear often teachers tell me one of the hardest things about doing making in the classroom is the kids don't believe it you know they they say well we're you can make anything you want and the kids are like yeah right you know because they know if they just sit long enough the teacher will tell you the answer we've taught kids that all you have to do is wait and the teacher will eventually just say okay look i'll just give you the the, the three bullet points i'll give you the you know the test questions in advance uh, i'll just i'll just let's just get through this and that time pressure creates this need for teachers to, to to push the content down and kids learn that they just have to sit there and and they'll get through it and so when you try and break that and you tell kids no no this is going to be your ideas they're like no that can't be that is not going to happen and so they'll you know they'll try and wiggle around especially kids who are good at school you know the ones who figured out the system who know what to do who know that all they have to do is sort of feed the teacher's notes back to them in the essay and they'll get the A and, you know, they're the ones who always ask the questions, how many pages, how many bullet points, how many graphics do you have to have, how many, you know, and when, when you won't answer those questions, it's hard for them. And if kids believe you, they will eventually start to strike out with more complex ideas. I think you have to start small. You have to start, start walking the talk. If, you know, if the kids hear you say you can do anything you want, but it's not true. And then there's a test on Friday anyway, they're not going to believe you the next time. And it gets harder and harder and harder to regain that trust. The good news I think is we've taught kids to feel that way about school. We can undo it. Right. It takes time. Right. I mean, I've heard stories from a number of teachers who tell me that when they, they come in and they say, okay, you have choice now. You can do whatever you want. Some kids will actually just rebel and go, no, 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 no. That's not the way this works. No, not <laughs> you know? fair. I don't want no. that. You know, don't, you just keep telling me, right? Yeah. Keep telling me yeah. what it is. And so the teachers are frustrated because, you know, here of they course. are, they're trying to make a change, but the kids just don't even want it because it changes the rules. So it, it is, Look, it's interesting. That's part of this. Yeah, that's part of this, this culture thing. If you're the yeah. only teacher in the school trying to do this, and so, you know, period one, period two, period three, kids hear one message, they come to your class and they're like, oh, you can do anything you want. They're like, oh, please. And then period four, period five, period six, they get, it gets reinforced that they're just yeah. be doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's, it's much harder. 
So, you know, sure, it's easier if all of the teachers are on the same page, there's leadership who's support, that's supporting these ideas, of course it's easier. And the irony of it is too, I mean, I mean if you're a parent, you know, you've heard how many times kids say, you don't trust me, <laughs> you, know, yeah, you need to right. trust me. You, you know, they want to be trusted, but then, mm -hmm. you know, you give them that opportunity in classrooms and many times they just, they can't, they don't know really how to deal with that. And you're right. They don't I do know think, what to do. Yeah, we've, because we've set them up for that because we've, we've you never. Know, and, and there's a, there's a guy who talks a lot about student voice named Adam Fletcher, um, who really makes some good points about, you know, sometimes empowerment isn't pretty. You know, right. the kids who really take empowerment to heart may not do what you want them to do. They may want to, you know, do something that you consider really, really wrong. And, you know, you, you have, so you have to try and figure out the, the ones who are most likely to jump on a chance to, to do something out of the box are the ones who are like, oh my God, I can't believe that. <laughs> oh, right. I'm going to let this happen. <laughs> I know, right? Um, you know, it, it is scary there's, you know, there's lots of different kinds of kids with different ideas. And, and this, this idea of empowering people is not clean and pretty. It can be messy. They can, people who are empowered can, can take a 180 and do things that you really didn't want them to do. And, you know, that's what politics is all about. Empowerment is not a uh, a neutral word. Empowerment right. isn't, isn't just about giving someone something in the context of what we expect them to do. It's about empowering something who, who doesn't, someone who doesn't have power and we give power to, that means we're losing power. If we think of it as a zero sum game, some game, we have to lose power for you to gain power. If you gain power and I lose power, that means that I have less control over the world, over the politics, over who gets elected to the city council, over my right. classroom, you know, all of these things. So you have to, you know, kind of take that chance with people who, with little people who don't have a lot of experience in the world and may, might make terrible decisions with, you know, <laughs> a political opponent who may do something you just absolutely hate. So this idea of empowerment is not clean and easy. It's not always pretty. Um, but I think that, that the opposite is, is worse. Right. That's interesting thought that power is a zero sum game, right? Because if, if we're giving some power back to kids, that means we took it away from them in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we took all the power, um, which I, which is why that word empower is interesting to me because it does suggest that we have power to give. And I'm not sure that we do. I mean, I think kids own their power. And yet I think probably what we do is we just create conditions where they can't employ their power more well, than anything else. So I, I don't want to say that, that it's a zero-sum game, that power is a zero-sum game. I think that what I meant, what I'm trying to say is that it appears to be a zero-sum game. Right. When in fact, it's more like, you know, if, if my candle lights your candle, we have twice as much light. It doesn't extinguish my candle. It's sort of this, right. you know, summative, generative kind of thing where it really does, it's not a zero-sum game. It just feels like a zero-sum game. It feels like we're taking a long walk off a short pier and everything is going to descend into chaos when, you know, teachers who get this under their belt 
say it's so much better. It's so yeah. much more rewarding. It's, it's, it makes their jobs more fun and more interesting. It energizes them as a teacher. It doesn't sap them of their strength. It actually increases it. So I didn't want that to go out on, <laughs> go out in the world. <laughs> too late. Um, too late. Oops. <laughs> Can't take it back now. No, but I hear you. And, and you know, and it, and it is to me again, it, it's more about, it's more about just creating the conditions under which our natural power can flourish, right? And and make it's. I see. I even get caught up with like giving permission almost because mm. again, I, I think it's just if we can build spaces or environments where kids feel that they can employ their own power. I think that's really what we want. And and then, like you said, if we can do that, if they can do that in concert with other kids or with us, that's when I think really powerful mm -hmm. learning environments happen. You wrote actually about empowerment, and I love this quote. You said empowerment isn't something you do to people. It's something that happens when people do powerful things that matter to them. And, and that to me is, is spot on, right? That giving kids the opportunity to do powerful things that matter to them, I think is, is really what the, what the role of the teacher is in the classroom now, assuming that they themselves have the power to do that, right? Well, I think it, it parallels the idea of citizenship. You know, that, that being a citizen is being a member of a community that values you and that you value. It's a win-win. It's a, it's a two-way street. And, you know, a lot of times in schools, citizenship means you do what I say. I'm going to read you rules. I'm going to tell you what the punishments are. And you have to follow my rules. And it's like, well, that's not citizenship. It's not citizenship at school. It's not digital citizenship. It's not citizenship as we know it as, in a democracy. Right. Um, it's, it's about you following my rules. And so we use these words at our own peril because they, we, we drain them of, the, of their power, you know, when we could be talking about how kids become citizens by being citizens of a, of, a, of a community that they care about in their classroom or in their school. They can be doing things that, that reach outside the classroom walls and change the world. And they become these global citizens who feel that they have the power to make the world a better place. And, you know, I, I don't think we can have it both ways. We can't use these words and then not actually <laughs> uh, help kids reach those, reach towards those, you know, those, those goals. Yeah. Rob Fried and I were actually talking about that in last week's podcast. Um, just uh, talking about Deborah Meyer, who says, you know, it's interesting that we want to help kids become citizens in a democratic society, but that schools are among the least democratic institutions that we have. You know, there's an irony to that as well. So I want to talk about making, right? Because that's something that, that you obviously have spent uh, the last decade or so, if not longer, really focused on and bringing, bringing the opportunities to make things into classrooms, this constructionist kind of pedagogy or stance. And I love, again, another quote, you wrote a really powerful post, I thought on this, um, that uh, talked about how making is a stance. It's a political stance almost, right? And your quote is, making in the classroom is a political stance. It's also about power and trust, and perhaps in an even more important way, because it's about transferring power to a new generation. So that's a pretty powerful, big statement to make. So can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, what is it that we are preparing this new generation of kids to do if we give them the opportunities to make things that matter in classrooms? All of this idea of making is about design, it's about engineering. It always starts with the ideas in your head. 
you know, and the, and when the ideas in your head come out into the real world, you, you know, you, you, you want to make them work and you want to make them as, as good as possible. You want them to match the, the magical things that you can imagine. And, you know, I, I don't think it's just about like making things with water, 3D printers or anything. It's also about making ideas real by writing, by talking to other people. I think the, the making in the classroom has gotten very narrow and I, I worry about that. And yet, you know, you, you wanna give people solid examples of what they can do. And, um, you know, so that's always a good thing. But to, to me, this is a much bigger idea. This is about kids making sense of their world um, with, with real tools, with real mathematics, to, to play with ideas that don't have to stay locked in, in, in their heads and don't have to stay locked in paper and pencil even. They can make videos, they can, you know, make things in 3D, they can make them with a 3D printer. And that any time when you make something, you want to make it work and you want to make it better. So this was one of the, one of the things that we talked a lot about in, in the book, Invent to Learn, was how to have those opportunities happen in real classrooms and you know, how to give kids tools that allow them to do design, do digital design, because when you use the tools of digital design, you get this iterative thing where, you know, like Save As is an incredibly powerful design tool. You know, I, here I get to do it over. I don't have to start over. You know, when when I was in school, I remember being very frustrated because my artistic ability was not as good as a lot of my friends, and it just killed me that I couldn't make these my ideas come out on paper. And finding out that you know I could do things like program or or, or you know build electronics gave me a whole expressive quality that that I could explore, and it was a very powerful thing to find out that it wasn't some deficiency on your part. You just didn't, you just hadn't found the way to, to speak yet. Right. You know, I don't know. I think we fool kids a lot. We kind of tell them that there's only one way to know certain things. There, this is the way you learn math. Here's this very narrow way you understand science. Here's this very way, uh, you know, narrow way that you're a good writer. Here's the way you're a good artist. And then we never let them sort of explore or, you know, understand that there are multiple ways to do all of these things. So to me, making is something that's allowing kids to express themselves in new ways, to make meaning of their world in ways that are more mathematical, uh, more logical than have ever been possible before, and to make, to make real stuff that actually works in the world. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, a 3D printer is like, you're making something out of nothing. What could be cooler than that? So can you talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say it's a political stance? Because I think that word political is a little bit loaded on, on mm -hmm. a number of levels. So what do you, when you say that, what, what is it that you're saying to teachers at that point? So in the big, you know, in the big picture, politics is about who has power, right? Who has power to make laws? Who has power to put you in jail? Who, you know, who has, who has political, political power is won by people coming together and saying, we believe a certain thing and majority rules or whatever the politics where you are is. <laughs> or or some other rules that in today's world, we have no idea what they are, but anyway, okay, go ahead. They are. Yeah, the back room, I don't know. But, you know, so in the classroom, the politics of the classroom seem to be very fixed, right? The teacher is in charge. And there are people who are clinging, kind of clinging to that power structure who, 
wants school to be exactly like it was 100 years ago. Whereas, in fact, you know, the thing that we call school today isn't that old. It isn't ancient. It isn't inherently human. Humans learn through apprenticeships, through growing up on in family businesses or family farms or going out hunting with mom or dad. And, you know, there was a lot of hands-on learning. And then about 100 years ago, we sort of narrowly defined this thing as school. And now we're all like freaked out that that might change. Whereas I think we have to be a lot more aware that people aren't going to factory jobs anymore. We have a completely different society than we had 100 years ago. We have this communication, this internet that's, you know, information can travel freely all over the world in a second. And we can't cling to this old political system, this old power structure that says, Here's what you do on October 1st, you know, October 5th, 19, you know, 99, I'm going to teach improper fractions to third graders and only third graders. And, you know, and that's probably too early for improper fractions, but, <laughs> um, and so people get, get locked into these political systems and believe that they're immutable, believe they'll never change when in fact, all of it is changing at all times. And the, the question is, is it going to snap and break or is it going to evolve? And, you know, hopefully it's not going to snap. It's not just one day all the schools are going to crumble and the kids are going to run free. And you know, <laughs> we're going to go, we rebuild it from scratch. I don't think that's going to happen. And yet I think that, you know, kind of, again, connecting this idea of external politics and internal school, I don't think any, any change to education has ever happened because educators said this will be a good idea. Every big revolution in schooling has come about from cultural changes, societal changes, industrial revolution, the, you know, the, the, progressive, the progressive impulses of, of like the early 20th century do-gooders who wanted to you know, put all the kids in a classroom together and teach them how to take baths and you know, wash behind their ears and, and learn to read and write. You know? And so these cultural movements change school. So is, is now going to be any different? What's, what's going to happen in our bigger society that's going to really impact schools? And how do we prepare ourselves for whatever that change is going to be? What do you think? Look, it, it could be something like, you know, the energy crisis or something, you know, all of a sudden, if schools couldn't, couldn't afford buses anymore, how would school change? Mm right? You know, what, what, what would be the ongoing impact of, of gas going to $20 a gallon? It would change school, probably way more than you and I and blog posts and books and, you know, whatever do. Right. <laughs> that kind of thing would change school permanently. We'd have to think about what's the important thing about kids coming together, how much money are we going to spend on that experience? What can be done at a distance? What's good about those distance experiences? What's terrible about them? I mean, right now we're experimenting with all this online learning and a lot of it is kind of just replicating the worst, most boring parts right. of school. Yeah. Well, why, you know, why don't we question that? Why don't we do it differently? So I don't know. I, I don't know what's coming. What's what do you think's coming? Well, I don't know. Climate you got me, change. You got, yeah. You, well, you've got me thinking right now. I mean, about what it would take to really uh, compel people in schools to engage in those existential conversations. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, you know, for us, because we read and write and talk about this all the time, I think those existential pressures are pretty apparent right now when it comes to schools, but also when it comes to larger issues in the world. So, you know, I, I mean, I keep thinking, you, you mentioned it there, climate change. I, I look at Greta Thunberg and I go, well, there's an example of a kid who is just grabbing power and exercising her power in ways that are changing the world. Um, mm-hmm. Whether or not her efforts at the end of the day <laughs> make us successful in averting what appears to be a pretty bad crisis coming our way, we'll have to see. But but she's inspirational just in the fact right. that she has decided I don't have to, you know, I, I, I don't have to just sit quietly about something that really matters to me. I can stand up at 15, 14, 15 years old and, and get a stage globally that can make things happen in some very powerful ways. So, um, well, and I think, you know, young people have always led revolutions. Yeah, you know, and, you look yep. at the Soweto uprising was about, was about education. Those kids were, were protesting not being able to get an education. You know, and all of a sudden it, it changes the world. The civil rights yeah. movement was led by very young people. And, you know, I was uh, listening to a podcast the other day. Al Gore was talking and he, and he said something. I can't remember the exact quote, but he said something like, you know, change happens really slowly until it happens and it happens quicker than you could ever imagine. Right. You know, and the, the, uh, of co- and the, the Gretas of the world, you never know who is going to be that, that keystone, that, you know, the, the one that pulls the, the the you know the the rock right. out of the the dike and the whole thing crumbles kind of stuff the you know the 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 stone of the berlin wall that makes it fall that something that you never thought could change all of a sudden does and it there's been thousands of activists in climate in, in the climate revolution some of them really young so, uh, right. from, from all over the world and maybe she's the one that that breaks some some you know people's awareness through Maybe it'll be someone else, but you're right. I think, I think young people do have this amazing capacity to, to see the world with clarity and say things. And sometimes those messages make it out of the, the murk. Do you think that's what Seymour Papert was talking about when he was talking about kid power? Um, no, I think he was actually talking about the opposite effect. I think he was talking about the masses of children understanding that learning does not have to be done at school. And I think that the, 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 the internet is teaching kids every day right. that there are a thousand ways to learn things and that at some point, it's going to be less and less worth it for kids to show up and open a textbook and wonder why we're not you know, looking on the internet or, or, or really understanding the complexity behind things because they can do that every single day outside of school. So I think his idea of kid power was more of a, of a bigger movement. It wasn't just one, one kid having the power. It was all kids having the power to, um, to have these understandings. And, you know, the, the research says like kids engagement in school goes down every year. Well, what's it going to, if it goes to zero, what are we going to do? Is, is, is 30, it's at like 30, 40% or something. That's horrible. What are we going to, are we going to wait until it goes to 20? What happens when it goes to 10? What happens, you know, like, how does this all happen? I mean, you know, it's like businesses talk about disruption all the time, right? 
It's like, oh, we need to disrupt this or that. But usually disruption happens and then people are looking around going, well, that's interesting. And ooh, ooh, now it's too late. And then all of a sudden one day it's like, it's too late for me to change my business because something else has disrupted it and the market's gone to a completely different place. And so, you know, we talk about disrupting school. We better be aware that <laughs> we need an alternative. And I think that the pedagogies, a pedagogy saying that, that the, the learner has the power to learn what they want, to, what they need to know, when they need to know it, and just it's up to us to figure out the structures that can make this happen in the world we have today and the world that we think might happen in the future. And that's, you know, that's the struggle we're all struggling with is how, how do we make this happen without waiting for the system to crash down around our ears? That yeah, sounds really horrible and nihilistic, but, and I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that's the future. I think things are pretty much going to go on as they've yeah, been going on. Yeah. I, um, I, I think you're right. I don't, I don't see schools all crashing down at the same time, but at the same time, I do think that the pressures are building. I think, you know, what you just talked about in terms of kids being able to learn um, on their own in, in more powerful and in deeper ways than they're learning in school is a pressure that's beginning to build, certainly in terms, and you see it in terms of engagement. I think that the dysfunction that we're seeing, you know, and I know that it's just high profile parents who are trying to buy their kids' way into colleges and higher education. I mean, I think to me, that's a sign of the dysfunction that we've reached when it comes to the narrative around, you know, what it means to be educated and how important it is to. Um, you know, to go to a particular school or whatever else. And I think there are other pieces like that that are beginning to chip away at, at the way we think about school. But mm -hmm. to, to uh, and obviously a lot of... Um, well, I think, I think it starts really early. I mean, yeah, it is really early. Yep. Recently, right? You go to, well, there's no more Toys R Us, but you know, you go to Target and look at the aisle of toys. Every single toy has learning, right? Here's a ball. It teaches spatial awareness. It, right. you know, teaches colors and numbers. Like every teddy bear has to teach colors and numbers and shapes. You know, it's like, for God's sakes, leave the kids alone. Can't they just play with a teddy bear? Can't they get like have an imaginative tea party or whatever? Right. And no, it has to teach them colors, numbers, and shapes. I just get this horrible image of kids showing up at nursery school and you know going don't even tell talk to me about colors numbers and shapes i've had it up to here from all my toys but this is a message this is marketing figuring out that parents are nervous and and anxious about a particular thing why does every marketing company in the united states think that parents are anxious about learning They're, they must be onto something parents are are don't know what to do they they don't know how to how to win the game of school it seems kind of opaque a lot of them weren't very good at the game of school themselves so they have to kind of hope that their kid reaches for the brass brass ring and some of them kind of cheat their way to the brass ring and you could hardly blame them because it's it's a game that doesn't seem to have a lot of rules except do exactly what you're told to do and if your kid's not good at doing exactly what they're told to do, what are you supposed to do as a parent? Give up or, you know, I think, right. I think this, this nervousness, this, this apprehension, this, this extreme anxiety on the part of parents is, is, a, is a mirror of our worries as a society that we're just not doing right by our kids. Yeah, I agree. And it obviously complex on so many different levels. So as we kind of bring this to a close, 
there is an imperative, it feels like, to begin to change that narrative and to at least create more space for different power relationships, especially in classrooms between teachers and kids, but throughout the entire system. Do you have any suggestions as to how we begin to do that? I mean, a lot of people will say, well, we do genius hour, for instance. You know, we're, we're trying to carve out some time for this type of learning to happen. I don't know if you think that's a, a good idea or not, but are there other ideas like that that maybe we can begin to just take some steps toward creating a different picture of what student agency looks like in the classroom and, and giving kids more freedom and power to pursue things on their own terms? Gosh, okay, so that's a super complex question because I'll come back to Genius Hour in a second. I think the, the biggest part of that answer is we have to really, really question what it is we're teaching students because we're teaching them things that are unimportant. And because we're teaching them this giant pile of stuff that's not important, we feel like we have to race through it. And we're, we're, so we're racing through all this un, un, unimportant stuff this you know, inch thick, mile wide curriculum, not letting, not letting any time, give any time for deep dives into, into things where you could really, you know, really learn some things. Until we question what we're teaching, we'll never solve the problem of how to do it better. Now, does that mean that, that me as one teacher is going to change curriculum you know, in my school, let alone my district, the world, no. So how do you do both of those things at once? How do you, how do you deal with the problems of what you can do better in your classroom today and what schools should be in the future? And those two things aren't always exactly alike. So although I don't love Genius Hour, to me it feels a little condescending, pat on the head, everyone gets a trophy, you're a genius. No, you're a genius. No, we're all geniuses. You know, it's like, well, if it was so great, why don't we do it all the time? Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, so, so, and yet I'm not going to criticize a teacher who, who takes the opportunity to do something different, right. who's thinking about their practice, who's trying something new. I'm not going to go, well, but you didn't change curriculum throughout the Western world. It's like, well, you know, I did what I could. I had a genius hour. That's great. I think a lot of teachers are working really hard at, at doing the best they can in the circumstances they're in. And I, I applaud them. I congratulate them and say, okay, what's next? You know, it's like, you're, you're always striving to do something better. You know, when we do, when Gary Staker and I do professional development, we're always trying to create the conditions where teachers can see something that maybe they haven't seen before as a possibility where they can question what the constraints are. Um, when they go back to school and say, do I really need to break the kids up into groups? Is this, is this, is this really cooperative learning or is it, is it, you know, is it really working for me and make little changes in their day-to-day -day, you know, classroom. So I think all of this happens with big and small changes with people at, at every level you never know where you are in this change. You know, it's like looking back at history. I know I can tell you exactly what happened. Well, that was the middle of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, but when you were there, you didn't know that. Right. So we don't know where we're at in this sort of next Industrial Revolution, next revolution of teaching and learning. Who knows? So we just have to keep kind of keep our eyes on the prize and our feet on the ground doing the best we can. Well, it's a fascinating conversation. 
Uh, it's a fascinating moment on a lot of different levels. Uh, challenging, <laughs> challenging right. for sure, right? But it's it's also exciting in a lot of different ways. And uh, I just really appreciate you taking some time to share your insights and experience, Sylvia. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks, Will. Thanks for asking me. So what can you do now after listening to Sylvia's thoughts about power in schools and classrooms? Well, here are three suggestions for you. First, ask some of your students when they feel most powerful as learners in their lives. Ask them what makes those moments powerful. Our kids are always great starting points for any conversations about learning. Second, if you haven't already done so, look into creating some genius time when students have more agency over the learning process. And I'll share some resources about genius time in the show notes at modernlearners.community. And finally, I highly recommend Sylvia's book, Invent to Learn. It's not just a great book about making in the classroom, it's also a great exploration of learning in general in the modern world. Next week, I'll be back with my third installment on the theme of power, and I hope you can join me then. For now, thanks for listening, everyone.